Welcome to Oak Ridge Bible Chapel. My name is Alice, and I'm one of the members of this church family. And we are so excited to have you join us today. So grab your Bible, your tablet, your notebook, pens, pencils, whatever it is that will help you engage most with today's sermon. And please enjoy our Sunday message. Now, as you come to Revelation 17, I want to take us in our minds back a few chapters to chapters 13 and 14, where if you remember, there was a lot going on. Satan, the dragon, had just called forth two beasts, the Antichrist and his false prophet, to be unleashed onto the world to deceive and to destroy, when John is shown an unfazed lamb standing on heavenly Mount Zion with his people. And in that scene, harps are played and songs are sung and gospels are proclaimed. And then, seemingly out of nowhere, an angel flies overhead declaring, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. At first read, you might say, Babylon? That kind of came out of nowhere. What does that have to do with anything? Such a specific call out. But then you carry on reading and you maybe forget about it. You get into chapter 15 and 16 and bowls of wrath are poured out. But then we come to the end of chapter 16 and we read this in verse 19. The great city was split in three parts. Babylon the great was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. And so twice in three chapters, this particular place is singled out. And we might ask, why? Why is this place uniquely deserving of punishment? What is it about Babylon that requires such a spotlight in these end times? So before we get into 17 and 18 today, which records the destruction, the fall of Babylon— we need to talk a little bit about what Babylon is, biblically speaking and thematically speaking. Because when we talk about Babylon, we're not just talking about a city, though we are. We're also talking about a system that emanates from that city. We do that as well today. We will speak of Wall Street or Madison Avenue, talking about particular roads, but also certain movements and industries that come out of those places. It's the same with Babylon. A specific place, but then this system of sin and rebellion that emanates from it. So we're talking about both when we talk about the fall of Babylon. And today we're going to find out why this city is such a big deal. This city and this system. Now we also need to remind ourselves that when the Bible talks about Babylon, and when we think about Babylon, we're talking about the second most mentioned city in all of Scripture, next to Jerusalem. In many ways, throughout Scripture, it's these two places, like the city of humanity and the city of God, and they are waging war. And while they are literal cities, throughout the Bible, they're also used as pictures of opposing allegiances and dueling ideologies and ultimately opposite fates. The history of Babylon starts way back in Genesis chapter 11. You may have heard of the Tower of Babel. That is the beginning of Babylon. Back in Genesis chapter 11, humanity is commanded by God, go out and fill the whole world, all of creation. And humanity says, no, we're not going to do that. In fact, in Genesis 11 verse 4, humanity says to one another, come, let us build for ourselves a city 
and a tower whose top will reach into heaven and let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise, we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. So God says, do this. And they say, no, we're going to do the exact opposite of what you said. And famously, God intervenes, doesn't he? He comes down and he confuses their language. He frustrates their progress and he does scatter them. So God gets his way, ultimately. But Babylon doesn't die at that point. They're scattered, they're frustrated, but they don't die. Instead, behind the scenes, they grow in significance and wickedness until, and you may know this, but centuries later, God would actually use her people to punish his people. The descendants of Babylon would come and bring discipline upon the nation of Israel. In 2 Kings chapter 20, God sends his prophet Isaiah to speak to Hezekiah, the king of Israel, and he says this, Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house, Hezekiah, and all that your fathers have laid up in store to this day will be carried to Babylon, and nothing shall be left. And so as evil as Babylon is, God uses her evil to come in and discipline his people. And they would. They would conquer Israel. They would destroy Jerusalem. They would burn the temple. And they would take God's people off into captivity. So God uses Babylon's evil here. But as you read through the Old Testament prophets, you also hear this common thread of they will be punished also. Yes, God does use evil Babylon, but their evil will be punished by a holy God. Passages like Jeremiah 50 and 51 and Isaiah 13 and many others, they prophesy of its absolute desolation and desertion in the future. And if you know your history, in B.C. 539, Babylon did fall. It did fall at the hands of the Persians under Cyrus the Great, who would then release God's people back to return to Jerusalem and rebuild. And that's recorded for us in Ezra and Nehemiah and Haggai, Zechariah and Malachi. So we see this back and forth with Babylon all through biblical history. But, but like a depraved cockroach, it just will not die. It gets stomped on, but it just keeps on coming. It survives time and time again, this God-hating city. And even after its destruction by the Persians, Zechariah prophesying after it had been destroyed comes along and says, guess what? A temple one day will be set up and will be used again in the land of Shinar, which is Babylon. This is after they've been destroyed by Persia. One day, it's going to rise again to prominence. So even after its destruction, Babylon's embers, they still burn. They still burn, and in the future, they will be fanned to flame, reigniting its opposition to God. And as we come to Revelation 17 and 18, that's what has happened in the future at this point. Babylon is once again a bonfire of rebellion, powerfully and effectively spreading its hellish ideology all over the globe. If we were to speak of this in terms of war, and that's really what we're looking at in Revelation, isn't it? This is war. If we're going to speak of it in those terms, we might say that Babylon is not the ultimate enemy. The ultimate enemy is the dragon, right? It is Satan. Babylon is not the ultimate enemy, but it will be enemy's most significant and strategic outpost. And so to get to the enemy, we've got to take out this stronghold first. And here in these two chapters, we see Babylon laid to waste in two stages. First, religiously, it is destroyed. And then finally, it is destroyed in its entirety. With that as a backdrop, look at chapter 17 of Revelation. Because in this first chapter that we're looking at this morning, we see the religious fall of Babylon. 
a city and a system that has again risen to power in these last days. Verse 1. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed acts of immorality, and those who dwell on the earth were made drunk with the wine of her immorality." So we're immediately struck with the religious aspect of Babylon's future influence. We see here that the kings of the earth, those in charge, those running the show, they are following her. Here she is called the great harlot, a graphic picture of intentional and insatiable adultery. Something you may remember God called his people in the book of Hosea. But in the future, the infidelity of Babylon will far outpace Israel's former infidelity. Verse 3, and the angel, that's he, and he carried me, John, away in the spirit into a wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, full of blasphemous names, having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was clothed in purple and scarlet, and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having her in her hand a gold cup full of abominations and of the unclean things of her immorality. And on her forehead a name was written, a mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. When I saw her, I wondered greatly. Now honestly, this might be one of the more difficult parts of all of Revelation. There are so many symbols and so many signs here, but we're going to do our best this morning to unpack it. Here we have a woman that John sees, and she is dressed to impress, clothing fitting for worship, in fact. But her apparent piety hides her complete blasphemy, doesn't it? A blasphemer. She's drunk on her hatred for God and her hatred for God's people, an evil that she represents and reproduces as the mother of all harlots. I just want to pause here and notice that in this time in the future, even after the church is taken out and believers are martyred this way and that way and they're running with their tail between their legs, notice that religion doesn't disappear. Religion is alive and well in the end. It's false religion, but it is alive. Why is that? May I suggest that it's because that's how we are made as human beings. We are made as worshipers. We are made to worship. And if we don't worship the one true God, we will find something to worship. And it's probably ourselves. Or some ideology, some idol, but we are made to worship. And that's what we see in the end times. We see worship of all sorts, harlotry, and in the future, this city and this system, Babylon, is right at the center. Now the angel here, speaking to John, showing John these things, can tell that John's a little lost. You can't really blame John, right? John wonders at it. So the angel decides to help him out. Verse 7. And the angel said to me, Why do you wonder? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to come up out of the abyss and go to destruction. 
And those who dwell on the earth, those whose name has not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, will wonder when they see the beast, that he was and is not and will come. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits, and they are seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, and the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must remain a little while. The, beach, the beast, which was and is not, is himself also an eighth and is one of the seven, and he goes to the destruction. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, and they receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. These have one purpose, and they give their power and authority to the beast. These will wage war against the lamb, and the lamb will overcome them, because he is Lord of lords and king of kings. And those who are with him are called, are the called and chosen and faithful. Aren't you glad the angel cleared that up? Just crystal clear, right? John is wondering, and the angel comes along and says, I'll explain it to you, and he might make things actually a little bit worse. But we're going to do our best again as we look through this. The beast here, who is at this point carrying the harlot, is the same beast of chapter 13 that came up out of the sea. That is the Antichrist, showing up again. He has the same heads and horns, chapter 13, speaks the same blasphemies, comes from the same abyss, and is headed for the same destruction. He's also described, I'm sure you notice in our text, three times as he who was and is not and will be, or something like that, right? Which is a confusing title, and I think what it's referring to is this Antichrist who shows up on the scene, is killed, if you remember, and comes back to life. You'll remember that he arises, receives a fatal wound, and then is restored, and he wows humanity. Like, we've never seen anything like this, uh, except for Jesus, by the way, but they ignore that, right? But they're in awe of this. He was not, and then he was again. And this, again, causes us to pause, brothers and sisters, because as it will be in the future, so it is now, that impressiveness and even the miraculous doesn't make something true and good. The demon can do all sorts of, the, the Satan can do all sorts of miracles, right? The word is true, and even the amazing, even the miraculous, we sift through this word to see what is true and good. In the future, they do not do that during this time of Babylon, and they are duped. Now, we're told in verse 10 of chapter 17 that the beast's seven heads represent seven kings or kingdoms. Five in the past, one in the present, and one in in the future. The Antichrist, we're told, and this gets confusing because we're told that he is kind of an eighth head, but he's also kind of like a tumor on the seventh head. He's like attached to the seventh head, but he's kind of unique, and he arises with this future king altogether. And when the seventh king and the Antichrist do take power together, they'll give authority to ten other waiting rulers. So they have these ten rulers who don't have kingdoms yet who are waiting. And then in the future, when this seventh ruler and the Antichrist with him arise to power, they give authority to these other rulers who in turn, their whole goal, verse 13, they have one purpose and they give their power and authority to the beast. And they prop up this Antichrist. So really the whole goal, this Antichrist rises to power, makes a little allegiance for himself and they prop him up more and more. This awful alliance, we're told, praise God in verse 14, will not defeat the lamb. He's the king of kings, after all. 
I love how John inserts that there, just in case we start to get concerned at this alliance that is building. That, well, hang on a second. He's still Lord of Lords and King of Kings. Let's not get carried away. But he is powerful. He's very powerful. In fact, verse 15 shows the scope of his power. And he said to me, the waters, looking back to verse 1, which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues all over the world. So this God-hating city and system of Babylon, when it's rekindled in the future, will reach everywhere and everyone. It's going to touch everything. Now at the point of the tribulation being described, this beast is coming up, did you notice, underneath and sheltered under and somewhat controlled by this woman underneath Babylon. The Antichrist is gaining momentum and resources in the shade of Babylon. That is, until he doesn't need her anymore. So he grows up underneath her, and then in verse 16, he gets his little posse around him, these rulers that now have power, giving him power, and these ten horns which you saw, and the beast, these will hate the harlot, and will make her desolate and naked, and will eat her flesh, and will burn her up with fire. The ambition of this beast will eclipse his need for the harlot at some point. Power isn't enough. Because from previous chapters of Revelation, what does this Antichrist ultimately want? He wants worship, right? He wants adoration. Right now, Babylon's got it. The harlot has it, but he wants it. And so he bides his time. He grows up underneath until he sees his chance and he overtakes her. We're told in Revelation 13 that at the midpoint of the tribulation, the beast will set himself up as God, demanding worship. In fact, he doles out the mark of the beast, so you can't even participate in the world unless you worship him. See, our God, he invites worship. The Antichrist will demand it. You will worship me. That's what's happening here in this text. In some ways, the Antichrist is out-Babyloning Babylon. He's trumping what they are already doing, overthrowing and undercutting her so as to rise above her. This is the religious fall of Babylon. And it seems like it's at the hands of the Antichrist, right? It kind of seems like it's this internal treachery. And in a way it is, but ultimately we're told it is God at work. Verse 17. For God has put it in their hearts to execute his purpose by having a common purpose, and by giving their kingdom to the beast, until the words of God will be fulfilled. The woman whom you saw is the great city, which reigns over the kings of the earth. Fallen is Babylon. But like I mentioned before, Babylon is like this depraved cockroach that just will not go away. Several times in history, they're stepped on, they're radiated, whatever, and it just keeps on coming back. And so it is here. In chapter 17, it seems like they're on their last legs, but no, not yet. And even though its religious chokehold over the world during the first half of the tribulation has been severely weakened in chapter 17, it still has a lot of cultural influence during this time. That is until chapter 18, in which we see finally the final fall of Babylon. Look with me in verse 1. After these things, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority. And the earth was illumined with his glory. And he cried out with a mighty voice, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. 
She has become a dwelling place of demons and a prison of every unclean spirit and a prison of every unclean and hateful bird. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the passion of her immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed acts of immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have become rich by the wealth of her sensuality. See, while Babylon here seems to be on her last legs, full of evil, controlled by demons, look at its legacy. It has a huge legacy. Exported global immorality and wealth, sensuality and debauchery going out from her. This is this system at work. It's dead, but it's not dead. Think back a number of years ago during the peak of the COVID fiasco that we had. You have someone who has COVID and you put them at home and isolate them, right? Keep them by themselves. But what happens if the day before they had been to like 12 birthday parties? It's kind of out of the bag at that point, right? You can isolate them, you can contain them, but the damage is really done at that point. And that's kind of what we see here. In chapter 17, Babylon is taken care of in many ways, hobbled by the Antichrist, but the damage is done. There's all sorts of cultural spreading going on of this idolatry. Verse 4 of chapter 18. John says, I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people so that you will not participate in her sins and receive of her plagues. For her sins have piled up as high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back even as she has paid, and give back to her double according to her deeds. In the cup which she has mixed, mix twice as much for her. To the degree that she glorified herself and lived sensuously, to the same degree give her torment and mourning. For she says in her heart, I sit as a queen and am not a widow, and, for ne- and I will never see mourning. For this reason, in one day her plagues will come, pestilence and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire. For the Lord God who judges her is strong. Notice back in verse 4 that there are saints in Babylon. Saints for God to call to. Come out of her. There are saints. In the city and under its system during this time, people who came to faith during this chaos, and God speaks directly to them. He says, get out of there. Get out of there. Why? Because his wrath is coming. Wrath in perfect proportion to all the the damage and the turmoil and the hurt and the idolatry that that city and that system have caused through all time. It's all coming now. So get out of there, God calls his people. Get away from her. And while her founders back in Genesis 11, while they failed to reach heaven, remember they were trying to build to reach heaven, while they failed, these ones, they actually succeed. But not with bricks. They reach heaven with her sin, and it piles up before God's face until he says, enough's enough. Now it's time that you receive justice. Proverbs chapter 15 says, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, watching the evil and the good. Jeremiah 16, God says, For my eyes are on all of their ways. They are not hidden from my face, nor is their iniquity concealed from my eyes. God sees everything. Nothing is lost to him, including the sins of Babylon. Well, it may seem today that some people in our world get away with murder, so to speak. Well, it may seem like that. It's just not true. It's not true. All is seen and all will be accounted for. Every corrupt thought, every selfish deed, every evil plan, 
every negligence, every harshness, every violence, all of it, and eventually the bill comes due. Eventually it does. And as the author of Hebrews says, it's appointed for man once to live, then to die, then to face judgment, and that's when that bill comes due. A God who sees everything, sees everything in our heart, he keeps track, he forgets nothing, and that would be and should be a terrifying thought to us if God had not paid that bill for us through Jesus Christ. We will all one day stand before God, and he will slide that bill across the table, and we will have one of two responses. We will search our pockets trying to find enough to pay that bill, a bill that we don't even know how steep it is because we don't even see all our sins, and he does. Or we will point to Jesus and say, he's got it. He waved me. He covered it. And how do we do that? He died on the cross to pay that bill for us and rose again and says, believe in me, and I will pay that bill for you. That's it. And so in that day, and we will all stand there, two options. We try to pay it ourselves, or he will pay it for us. And how do we do that? By believing in him. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in us when we trust in him. Now back in Revelation 18, the bill comes due for Babylon. And listen to the hard-hearted people from Babylon that mourn its destruction. Starting in verse 9. And the kings of the earth who committed acts of immorality and lived sensuously with her, will weep and lament over her when they see the smoke of her burning. Standing at a distance because of the fear of her torment, saying, Woe, woe, the great city Babylon, the strong city, for in one hour your judgment has come. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes anymore. Cargoes of gold and silver and precious stones and pearls and fine linen and purple and silk and scarlet and every kind of citron wood and every article of ivory and every article made from very costly wood and bronze and iron and marble and cinnamon and spice and incense and perfume and frankincense and wine and olive oil and fine flour and wheat and cattle and sheep and cargoes of horses and chariots and slaves and human lives. So even after the religious fall of Babylon in chapter 17, even after that is done, even after it's been crippled by the beast, the Antichrist from within, commercial Babylon just keeps on ticking, doesn't it? It just keeps on propagating its sin. And, and we see here that idolatry, it comes on all sorts of shapes and sizes. It doesn't have to be temple worship and this explicit religiosity. It can be all sorts of things that take our minds away from the one true God. But here in chapter 18, we see that it's all gone. And it's gone in an instant. Verse 14. The fruit you long for has gone from you. And all things that were luxurious and splendid have passed away from you. And men will no longer find them. The merchants of these things who became rich from her will stand at a distance because of the fear of her torment, weeping and mourning, saying, Whoa, whoa, the great city. She who is clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls. For in one hour, such great wealth has been laid waste. In other words, it meant nothing. It's gone. And every shipmaster and every passenger and sailor and as many as make their living by the sea stood at a distance and were crying out as they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, What city is like the great city 
And they threw dust on their heads and were crying out, weeping and mourning, saying, Woe, woe, the great city in which all who had ships at sea became rich by her wealth, for in one hour she has been laid waste. These people, what should they be mourning for? They should be mourning their sin, right? And their idolatry and their rebellion. That's what should grieve them. But no, instead, these people are broken over the destruction of the source of their sin. Babylon, the city and the system. The token of their idolatry and the hub of their rebellion. It's gone. That was kind of our thing. That's, that's where we got all our power and all our fun. And it's gone. And now we just weep because we have nothing left. In contrast to this weeping and this mourning on earth. Verse 20. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, because God has pronounced judgment for you against her. I think that this is an answer to the prayer back in chapter 6, you may remember, when the martyrs, by God, they cry out and they say, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? We come to chapter 18 and God says, now is the time. You are totally avenged. Every heartache that you had, every injustice that you encountered, it's all made right. So rejoice. Rejoice because of it. Verse 21. Then a strong angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, so will Babylon the great city be thrown down with violence and will not be found any longer. And the sound of harpists and musicians and flute players and trumpeters will not be heard in you any longer. And no craftsman of any craft will be found in you any longer. And the sound of a mill will not be heard in you any longer. And the light of a lamp will not shine in you any longer. And the voice of the bridegroom and bride will not be heard in you any longer. For your merchants were the great men of the earth, because all the nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all who have been slain on the earth. And here we find the fulfillment of all the Old Testament predictions of the complete desolation of this great harlot. Babel, Genesis 11, finds its culmination, Revelation 18, with the destruction, the final destruction of this harlot. The death of this depraved cockroach, the defeat of the enemy's chief military outpost, and the final fall of Babylon. So we see here that God uses two stages to defeat this great place, this city, and this system. First, treachery from within, and then wrath from above. But at the end of the day, fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. And as this city, this outpost is destroyed, it paves the way now for the defeat of the ultimate enemy, the dragon. Now that the city's out of the way, it's just the dragon, and that's coming next. It also paves the way for the coming of the Christ, for the return of Jesus. So we've seen here in this text, and admittedly it's a dense passage, But we've seen here the religious fall of Babylon and the final fall of Babylon. But as we close, I want to suggest some reminders for us from the fall of Babylon. And I use that word very purposefully. These are reminders. Because these three things I want to put before us now are not novel, and they will surprise no one. 
But they're good things for us to keep in the forefront of our mind, and this passage gives us an excuse and a reason to do that. Reminder number one, sin is powerful, friends. Sin is powerful, probably more than we know. It's a powerful thing. Let's face it, Christians, we can be lulled into a sense of comfort and apathy and indifference when it comes to sin. Maybe it's because it's just all around us all the time. We're inundated by it. It's coming up from within me. It's pressing in from outside of me. It's just sin everywhere. And because of that, maybe it's because of that that we become numb sometimes to sin. And when we become numb, then we start maybe tolerating it a little bit more than we would have before. Then we start accommodating for it maybe justifying it a little bit. Then we might actually start participating in it more and then defending it and then maybe even celebrating it. We might say, how can Christians celebrate such things that God says are so obviously wrong? Well, it's this slope, isn't it? We're inundated, we become numb, we forget that sin is powerful. It's more powerful than us. We have to keep our head on a swivel. We have to watch out for it. As we've seen many times through our study in this book, in Revelation, we see again today, sin is so powerful and it cannot be underestimated in our lives. can't be. It has a capital city that just won't die. It's strong. And how many times in this text do they have to say, great, great, before we realize, oh man, maybe Babylon is great. Maybe it's pretty significant. I mean, for crying out loud, Babylon the great, the great harlot, um, saw the great city, the great city, woe to the great city, the great city, the great city, on and on. Okay, sin is powerful. It's great. It's bigger than us. It is powerful and influential. And the judgment that we saw here is so severe. Why? Because the sin is so severe. It is in perfect proportion to the sin. We saw in Revelation that this sin is forcefully evangelistic making people all over the world drink the wine of its immorality and blasphemy and abominations and harlotry. It's powerful. We also are reminded here in chapter 18, verse 7, that it's deceptive in its power, isn't it? We see here the, the harlot saying, I sit as a queen and not a widow, and I will never see mourning. What hubris. Nothing can touch me. That is what sin does. It distorts our minds so we don't see reality anymore and we think we're untouchable. We think we cannot be moved because we're so strong. Have you ever thought, what is the dragon's endgame here? Have you ever thought about that? Satan, what is his endgame here? He's trying to take the throne of the Almighty God? He's been in the throne room. He knows what God is like. What is he trying to do? Does he think he can actually usurp that? He's twisted. He's deluded because that is what sin does. It is powerful and convoluted and clouds reality. And that's what it did in Babylon, it does for the enemy, and that's what it can do for you and I as well, because sin is powerful. It twists reality and stops us from seeing reality. As followers of Christ, we just say, what can it do to us? We're in Christ, right? We're forgiven. So when we dabble with sin and we forget that it's so powerful, what does it do to us? Well, it can harm our walk with the Lord, it can stifle our usefulness, It can shield the way and defile the way that we enjoy his presence, his peace, his joy. We become less useful to the Lord. Our prayers are hindered. There's so many things and consequences that sin coming into the Christian life does. And may I just extrapolate to a church. What if there's a church who doesn't take sin seriously? Not just individual believers, but a church. I mean, back in chapter 2 and 3 of Revelation, didn't we have little snapshots of that? The church saying, 
being told by God, if you don't get your act together, if you don't deal with this sin, I'm taking your lampstand away. You're no longer useful to me. I can't use you anymore. You have so defiled yourself. Sin is a big deal, church. We take care of it. That's why it's so important as a church that we watch one another's backs. We, we care about sin. We talk about sin. We, yes, we want to talk about the love of God. Amen. We want to talk about the grace of God. We want to talk about all those things. But woe to us if we never mention the seriousness of sin. And we see it pictured here as well. And by the way, is not the grace and love of God even more brilliant on top of the blackness of sin? We, we think we're doing each other a favor. Let's not talk about sin because it's embarrassing. It makes people feel bad, right? It makes people feel bad. Who cares? It glorifies our God. That's the best thing ever. Sin is wretched. God is glorious and he paid for it all. So we look at sin, we say, it's more powerful than us. Okay, I'm beating that dead horse. That's enough. The point is this. As one person wrote, be killing sin or it'll kill you. That is the goal. We deal with sin with the power of the Holy Spirit and kill it in our lives and in the life of our church or it will take us down. And we've seen that in multiple churches throughout the last 20 years. Lord, may it never be. We take sin seriously because it's powerful. Reminder number two. This one's shorter. Separation is necessary. It's related to the last one, but it's shorter. Separation is necessary. What does God tell his people living in Babylon? Back in chapter 18. Come out of her, my people, so you will not participate in her sins and receive her plagues. This, this command here is kind of in some ways, the touch point of two themes that have come through the book of Revelation and through the Bible as a whole. On one hand, we have this obvious admonition that the people of God are to go into the world, aren't we? With the gospel of Christ. We're to go to a dying world and give them the hope. We do not pull all the way back from the world. We go in as warriors, as emissaries of the king. That's our job. But on the other hand, the only way we can do that effectively is if we're different from the world is if we first pulled away from the world. We can't walk into the world ex looking exactly like them and say, hey, we've got something better. They say, you look exactly like me. What are you offering me? No, we go in as different. We pull out, we are different, and then we go in to give them the gospel. This is what, if you'll remember in the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus famously says to his disciples, you are salt and light in this world. To go out to be salt, something that's different from ice, it melts, different from food, it gives flavor, different from all these, it's different Go out and be different. You're light in a dark world. Go out and be different. And they say, well, how can we do that? What about the Beatitudes that just came before? How about you act like that? How about you have Christ's character and then go out into the world different and you will be salt and light because character comes before commission every single time. There are many Christians and churches who want to go about their commission without worrying about character. That will not work. That's not the way we were designed. We are to care about sin, we are to separate ourselves because that is necessary, and then we are to go to the world with the best news ever. So when this voice comes from heaven in Revelation 18, God telling his people to come out of her, it doesn't mean physically, it doesn't mean run away from her, so to speak. I mean, Jesus dealt with this in the upper room. He said, I, I'm not calling them out of the world, they didn't have to leave the world. I'm saying they need to be morally distinct. They need to be different. Now let's face it, the church maybe present company excluded, but probably not. We need this reminder. We need to be different from the world. 
The goal is not to see how close we can sidle up to that line and still be effective. The goal is to be radically different, full of joy and full of peace and full of hope. So when the world collapses, we say, come, we have something different for you, way different when all of that collapses around you. The church needs that reminder. Are we allowing one another to dabble in things of the world a little bit too much? Are we getting numb to sin? Are we tolerating it? I'm not calling for legalism here, but wisdom. Are we exposing our children and grandchildren unthinkingly to the things of this world? Because that's just what everyone else is doing, so we should do that, right? Are we filling our minds with that which the world celebrates? Separation is necessary. It takes courage, but the rewards are great. Reminder number three. Now, this is a joyful one. Christ is victorious. That's the greatest reminder ever, isn't it? Back in chapter 18, after these things, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illumined with his glory. And he cried out with a mighty voice, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. The end of verse 8, For the Lord God who judges her is strong. Verse 20, Rejoice over her, O heavens, and you saints and apostles and prophets, because God has pronounced judgment for you against her. Sin is powerful. It's too powerful for us sometimes. It pulls us back in. It tricks us. It dupes us. We're fallen creatures, right? We're aware of it, but it still wins the day sometimes if we're honest. Separation is necessary, but I'll be honest, sometimes I'm thoughtless. Sometimes I'm ignorant and rebellious and get sucked back in, and I look a little bit too much like the world. Let's face it, if this war was up to us, this is a pathetic army, isn't it? There's not a whole lot of hope in this war, but thanks be to God through Christ. He has the victory and we with him. In fact, in chapter 17, these will wage war against the lamb and the lamb will overcome them because he is Lord of lords and king of kings and those who are with him are the called, the chosen, and the faithful. We are the called, the chosen, and the faithful. We win this war not because we're great soldiers, We win because our general is undefeated. That's why we win. Christ has the victory. And so while we wait, we recognize and we remind each other, sin is powerful. Gosh, it's powerful. Separation is necessary, but at the end, Christ is victorious. Let's pray together. Thank you so much for joining us today. For more sermons and other resources, you can visit our website at oakwitchbiblechapel.org. To listen to our weekly podcast, Word processing, you can go to Spotify or Apple Podcasts or any other podcasting platform. Remember, you can always join us in person or on our live stream at 10.30 a.m. on Sundays. Thanks for watching.